Welcome back to CPA Canada's Disruptive Series podcasts, In Conversation With. We've had a chance to hear from John Caldwell and Tom O'Neill on the board's role in overseeing risk. Today, John and Tom will share their expertise and experiences on the risks of dysfunctional boards. Currently, John is chair of the Board of Advanced Micro Devices and director of Ferro Technologies. I am Gold and Samuel Sun and Company Limited. John has broad board and executive level experiences in distress situations with companies including Stelco, GIAC Computer, Mosaic Group, and SMTC Corporation, so provides valuable insight into enterprise risk. John is the author of CPA Canada's Overseeing Risk, a Framework for Boards of Directors, and co-author on two other CPA Canada publications, Overseeing Strategy and Overseeing Mergers and Acquisitions. Tom O'Neill is former Chief Operating Officer of PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP Global and former CEO of PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP Canada. His career also includes extensive corporate board and chair experience, including Scotiabank, Loblaw Companies, and BCE. Tom is currently on the board of St. Michael's Hospital. And now, our conversation with. Okay, Tom and uh, John, I'm going to ask you both to describe the types of dysfunction you've witnessed on boards. Why don't we start with you, Tom? I'll start with individual director dysfunctions because there's many forms of dysfunction. But at the individual level, um, and it can take many shapes, but the thing that strikes me is that everybody in the room, i.e. all the other directors, would recognize the dysfunction. So it's not hidden or a secret. And I would say that it's up to the chairman to deal with that of the board and in a counseling way suggest how to correct it. And if that individual can't remedy the dysfunctionality, then I think it's time to move that individual off the board. Some examples are pretty simple. One is someone who's double timing, i.e. doing more work on his own or her own with computers and phones. And that's rude to the presenters. It's also rude to his co-directors. At dinners, people who get inebriated and out of control, you have to take care of that. Those are pretty simple and easy ones. We'll get into more complex ones, and maybe John can start with an example with more than one dysfunctional director. Yeah, so, um, Tom, I think in level of complexity, I think dealing with an individual director who's dysfunctional is probably the simplest of them all. It gets progressively more difficult. I think the next layer up is having a dysfunctional CEO where the board recognizes they've got a dysfunctional CEO and they have a position to take action. Raising the complexity above that is if you've got a dysfunctional chairman and above that is a chief executive officer and a chairman who's aligned and they're both dysfunctional. And I've actually seen all of those cases in one form or another and they're increasingly more difficult to deal with as you go up that chain. And so... If you take the extreme, a chairman and a CEO who are completely aligned, I'll give you an example about that in a moment, it is probably the most difficult thing to deal with because you're powerless to make change, certainly in the short in the short run. 
In those circumstances, and I've had one, the seems to me the chair of the governance committee, if he or she is uh, capable, can at least get on with the discussion with the chairman. Uh, the CEO is a board matter, as you know, anyway. But the end of that movie usually is both are gone, right? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So I had a circumstance, Tom, where in this board I was on, the CEO was elevated to chairman, put his person in as CEO, and was overly protective, of, frankly, of an incompetent CEO. And the chairman was also well aligned with the chairman of the governance committee. So the three of them end up running the board in effect. The company was in serious, serious difficulty, ultimately filed for Chapter 11. And it took the board, well, I was on the board for 18 months before we were able to get rid of all three. But it was actually too late. As a point in principle, I'm actually not in favor of having past CEOs becoming board members, let alone the chair. That just is a point in principle. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. I, I'd like to get back to John's point. Can you give a bit more information about how the board did eventually yeah. deal with that, that uh, trifecta, trifecta yeah. of uh, dysfunction? Well, it was interesting. I was on a, I was on a, a, a board call. And the company was in some difficulty, and we were quizzing the CEO about some of the things he may wish to think about, cost reduction, other things. And the CEO says to me, he says, John, if you want to run the company, you just come in here and do that to a director. In answer to your question? Yeah. Wow. And uh, so I put, I put the phone down, and I, and I called one of my fellow directors. And I'm relatively new on this board in a short period of time. And I said, did you hear what I just heard? And so we started the ball rolling, and others heard it too, and there was conversations that took place amongst various board members to say, we've got a bigger problem here. And eventually, those other than those three, we concluded they all had to go. And so we actually systematically, over a period of about three months, moved them all out. And it took a lot of time and a lot of effort, and it was painful. Another dysfunctional signal is when you have factions on boards, right? And I guess you can have more than two, but two is bad enough. Uh, and usually that results in heartbreak at the end because you have to deal with that as well. Um, I guess the best public example of that would have been the Hewlett-Packard mess of some years ago where they were actually started having investigations and spying on individual directors. I mean, that's off the chart. I think in that case, uh, using outside help, they blew the entire board up yep. and started afresh. So speaking of spying, let me tell you a chairman story, <laughs> dysfunctional chairman. I was CEO of a company, and they put a chairman in place. And this, uh, he had some personal issues. He's bloodly paranoid, paranoid person. But he, he would call up my staff and tell them not to tell me that he called, and he tried to get information about the company without me knowing. And then he'd play it back to me in board meetings and try to make me look bad. And I, I actually brought a firm in and had my office swept because I thought it was being bugged. I did. And it took me a while to conclude, we'll get on to that in a moment, what was his intention. And by the way, he would if I phoned him, if he phoned me and left a message, if I didn't return his call within four hours, he sent a board to a, a letter to me and a copy to all the board members. True story. Wow. True story. Yeah. Any other um, examples of, uh, <laughs> uh, we've got CEO-only individual director. You've gone, gone all the way up um, in terms of the, these examples. So, uh, 
Well, we've had Tom. You've, I'm sure you've had. You've had CEOs that just were fighting with their boards. Yeah, they just just could not get aligned with their boards, and yeah. it, it, sometimes it's legitimately of differences. Sometimes it's just a bad fit. Yeah. Sometimes it's CEO and, and confidence. We we've all gone through that. And I th- I think John on that one, the, the relationship between the chairman of the board and the CEO on the split basis, which I support, is really important. It has to be, you know, it has to be respectful at least. And uh, if you don't have that, then you're going to have a problem for sure, right? Yeah. One of the hard parts on that, Tom, is, and you've you've seen this, and there's a fine balance of being a chairman. You want to be the CEO's supporter, but you don't want to be the CEO's advocate either. Or cheerleader, right? Correct. I skepticism. I learned from a chairman I have a lot of respect for. He would tell the CEO, "Look, everything you've told me, I I agree with, but I'm going to reserve to change my mind when I go in that meeting when I hear what my other directors say." So, uh, don't be surprised if I go a different direction. If I hear something that I think makes more sense, I'm going to change my mind. And I thought that was very insightful. Can I just ask one more question for either one of you around when you are in these difficult situations, just how how you manage it? So maybe how you would manage it if you're chair, um, chair of the governance committee. Is there is there any more information around sort of how to deal with the issues? I think the worst combination, I think John's hit it, is if, if the chair of the board and the chair of the governance committee, who should be chairing the, the review of the board chair as, as a director and as the chair, and the CEO are all uh, part of the problem. I think that's the most complicated uh, thing that you could run into. One of the things you could do as a board, is, I guess, is go outside. But I, I'm very reluctant to go outside until you absolutely need to go outside. I'd rather clean up the nest from within. Uh, sometimes when you get outside, it could be inside too if it gets leaks into the press or somehow you know there's an aura around that and so whatever you do you're trying to keep it private I agree with you and if it does get to the press what do you do well you'd have to have your people uh, at least in the the, uh, press department and the PR department at least prepared with a script to say we don't comment or some such thing be like on an A&M or uh, or any other issue but a prepared text, I think, to be ready. It does. It, it leaks out, though, Tom. Oh, yeah, it does. Well, it's a dysfunctional That's why you have to be fast, John. You do. You've got to deal quickly. And, and if you don't do it, it impacts employees, the management, and it impacts investors, right? They lose confidence. If they hear we've got a dysfunctional board, you lose confidence, and it destroys value. Yeah. Conversely, boards that take action, right, they're seen to take action, and they can restore that credibility very quickly. You mm-hmm. have limited time to do that. Yeah. And if you let it drag on, the difficulty is it's it's hard sometimes to build consensus around that because there's a tendency to try and rationalize not making change rather than making it. And this is where I think a great director really stands up. Anybody can be a director of a company that's doing well with well-run and a well-run board. I mean, frankly, it's not that difficult. Great directors are those who can step up at the time, call it out like it is, and drive action. And that, that's a great sign of a great director and a great chairman as well. To do that. Great point. And I, I had also said in a crisis situation, and I've been in a few of those, sometimes you see aberrant behavior uh, because the, the aberrant behavior was the direct, would, the, would be that the director's thinking more of his or her reputation and not thinking of why they're there in the first place which is to take care of the corporate needs, yep. not their individual needs. Um, and some companies have done great uh, work in crises and others have not. 
and you, you know it's in the public domain. I agree with you. You know, you when you think about what what are the underlying reasons why people or organizations become dysfunctional, and when I think about the directors that I've dealt with who have become dysfunctional, almost always it's they're putting their interests in front of the in front of their responsibilities in front of the enterprise. Agreed. Almost always. And that can be monetary. I've seen it can be ambition. In one case, you know, in several cases, I've seen a, a director who wants to become the CEO, yep. discredits the CEO, so they they get an opportunity to step into that role. I've seen that from time to time. I've seen directors who insist on calling more and more board meetings because they like the fees. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm in favor of the flat fees. Me too. Uh, me too. Now, can I ask you about fear and the role of fear as a, as a director? And, and one of the examples that's jumping to mind uh, for me is an organization that uh, the board did very quickly act. And they um, took some actions that, in fact, had to be reversed afterwards or went, once it went through. Uh, they weren't reversed, but once it went through um, uh, the legal system. In fact, it was determined that their, um, th their assumptions were, were incorrect. Some of the reasons for that were um, fear, uh, fear of the media criticizing them, not moving fast enough. Well, I would have thought that a board before it, no matter how quickly they have to make the decision, would have sought, sought appropriate professional input, particularly legal, before they crossed that Rubicon. So I don't know whether that led to the fear or not, but I'm not familiar with that experience. Yeah. Um, there's was some cases where we've seen overreactions for sure when, the, when there's a lot of media outstanding. I think Tom's right. I think well-run boards understand they've got to take action, but they still have to they have to go through the processes, and, and you, you can align a board pretty quickly on that. If you, boards, see, I don't often see a board overreacting. I generally see them underreacting under way I, more often. I agree with that. Where they, they don't take enough action, they don't take enough action fast enough. In the event that you haven't uh, discussed it already, I don't think you have, is can you talk a bit more about some of the underlying causes of dysfunction? Well, I, I thought we had talked okay. about it a little bit, uh, Gigi, in, in John's uh, last answer, but um, I'm trying to think if there's anything I would add to that. I okay. think crises definitely mm -hmm. uh, can cause anxiety, and uh, great directors step up to it. As I've said, and when I've been involved in these crisis cases, is my dad's lesson was you can't quit the army when the war starts. Yeah. You got to be up. That's when you they really the corporation really needs the expertise. Yeah, the, sometimes especially for newer directors, their first instinct is I got to get off. I got to run from this, and it's it's exactly the opposite. This is where you have to stand up. And so when people have asked me, you know, I'm on this board. It's difficult. Should I get off it? I said quite the opposite. You get off it only to a point where you can't affect change. If you realize that no matter what you've tried, you cannot affect change, then you probably do have to go off it. But that's your last resort. Yeah, and also, John, the newest directors in some cases are immune to the problem anyway because right. they weren't on board when the whole thing started, right? Right. And so they are, they provide a sober, hopefully sane thought because they're not worried about that aspect, the legal liability. And the liability. I mean, Tom, you know this. that In Canada, a, a director who's a competent third of director, you know, has no. very limited lives. Set aside their protection for the indemnities and DNO insurance. I agree. They You'd do, have to be fraudulent. If to you be do your job and you're intelligent and you do your homework and you're thoughtful, 
you have a very, very limited liability. Exactly. You, should, you shouldn't worry about those things. Doing the right thing is always the right answer, yeah. always. Can you then talk a little bit more about the impact of dysfunctionality or disruption in the boardroom? Thinking about sort of what, what is the impact in terms of the board's ability to function, how it impacts the company, the financials, whatever. Well, I think a, a dysfunctional director or more definitely taints the whole process of governing the, the company because the meetings change, the tone changes, uh, people are usually grumpy about it, and uh, go to John's point, uh, people might say, I don't want to be around here, and, and good ones might, uh, that's why you have to, good ones might leave, that's why you have to act quickly. I believe in the counseling approach if it's one or two and they're individuals and not a, a cabal. And if it doesn't work, then you move on. You, yeah. you get new directors. You do. I think the, I think the impact of the board's fairly obvious one, right? You're going to lose good people. Something has to change. So the boardroom is just not going to be a fun place to be. It's also well known. I mean, the management goes in. They see it. They can cool. absolutely see it. So that information get, is pervasive through the organization. And so it becomes well known. I also, also believe I've never seen a dysfunctional board of a high-performing company. <laughs> It's usually the opposite. So it has all the makings of value underperforming business and value, value destruction, yeah. almost always. And on your management point, uh, I interviewed senior management as a matter of course, as I would deal with the individual board directors. This isn't the questionnaire. This is actually sitting down over an agenda. And I came away with, with the impression that these managed, senior management knew our board members as well, if not better than I did. Yep. They know who's good and who isn't. Yep. Yeah. yeah, Tom, when, I, when I'm involved in, in board evaluation, I send all the directors a long checklist of stuff, and I said, I want you to read it. Now we're going to have a conversation. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me about your peers. Tell me, that's always sensitive, right? Tell me about your peers. Who's, who's carrying their weight? Who's not? Do we have disruption here, right? Is it becoming dysfunctional? You'll, you'll hear it. Right. Are we crossing the management line? Yeah. Those Where kind are of questions. We? I also ask the same questions of the senior ranks. I do the same thing yeah. you do. I talk to the CEO. I talk to the CEO's direct reports who interface with the board. What's your impression of this board? If you could make changes at the board level, what would you do? And so I try and triangulate all that information, exactly. then I feed it back to the board. Exactly, yeah. Plus, you get a bit of insight on succession while you're you do. that, don't you? You That's do. different than the formal process exactly because you're right. one-on-one. Yep. Yeah. This is a side benefit. Yeah, there is. Now, John, you talked about a uh, chair going to your direct reports without you being aware of it. Um, do you often find an openness to be able to go and speak to management, management of different levels? How far down do you go to get a really good picture of what's happening in an organization? Well, uh, first of all, you, you can only peel the onion so far, and particularly the larger the organization, mm -hmm. I think, uh, the more you should respect that. My operating procedure with the CEOs, and, and, and they were more than happy to deal with it, is we didn't want to be controllers in the sense of an hourglass and everything had to go through either the CEO or myself, as chair I'm talking, that there was access. And in fact, in many of the reports uh, that were being the pre-reading, the author who was going to present would leave a number that you, you were free to call. Then the issue is you don't want it to be abused. You don't want directors to start chewing up management time uh, one by one, for example. If it's an important enough observation, then it could lead to a board presentation for all as opposed to just for one. But I'm, I'm in uh, total favor of transparency, and the only 
thing you'd ask, whether the CEO or it's the chair, say, in your conversation between a director and a senior officer, if either of you land on a landmine, let us know, right? Uh, but by and large, if you control it, you'll, I think it'll subdue the conversation. But you can't overdo it because then you're chewing up management time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I've seen instances where CEOs want to run everything through them. Oh, I have. Because they want to control everything, exactly. and that's their nature. I think the best CEOs are the opposite. They say, I want you to get to know my team. I want my team to interface with you. They'll learn from you. And so one case, company's been sold, Cognos was on the board, Ron Zambonini was the CEO. He was one of the most enlightened CEOs I've ever met. And he would say to his board, I want you to meet my people. When you're in town, I want you to have dinner. I want you to help me evaluate them. I want you to mentor them and help them become better. That, to me, is an open-minded person. At AMD, where I'm chairman, uh, at every board meeting, I come in the night before and I have dinner with one of the executives. And the CEO knows, of course, they want me to do that. And I get a chance to spend an hour or two with each of the executives. And we've got a formal mentoring program where... Each of our directors mentors not only the one layer down, but a second layer down of high performers. And we've got a very enlightened CEO who really encourages that. The other thing about enlightened CEOs that I would cite is that, uh, and I, I was lucky to work with a few of them, is they encourage exit interviews, whether it's a retirement even, let alone uh, an uh, a voluntary uh, departure. And for uh, hires at a certain level and above, not all of the list, but when they get to the finalists, maybe two, one for sure, that is not controlling. That is embracing uh, transparency. Why wouldn't a CEO want the board to speak to? Well, I think it's to do with personality. I think uh, we all know people who are control freaks, and anybody who's a control freak, I think, would be not happy with that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, it, to me, it just signals poor leadership, bluntly. It's a red flag. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a huge red flag. When so someone says, run it all through me, first sign is they don't want you to hear something about them. Right. And the other derivative of that, John, in my experience in that circumstance is that they also, you don't get exposure to the staff in board meetings. They, they tend to run it, right. you know, cradle to grave. Another red flag. Yep. Yeah, I, I always encourage, you know, I always encourage, bring people in. They're not going to sit through the whole meeting come in for your session and leave. But what we want to get exposure, not only to the direct reports, but to layers down. Show us the high performers. We want to see people in action. And they learn they do. just by sitting there, yep. observing. Yep. So um, a final question before I get your ending thoughts. Um, can you identify um, sort of the due diligence that a director could go through or should go through before joining a board? Oh. How do you find out if a board is dysfunctional before you get on it? Well, I will get personal in on this one because I set a set of criteria that I followed, and it wasn't a long set of criteria, but it was an important set. Because what boards do is they should do a few things but do them very well, maybe five or six things. So one uh, criteria I had is I was not interested, nor would I entertain going on a dual class share board, period. Um, it's just something that's anathema to me. Second, I would never join a board that I didn't know at least one person on that board who, with, or for whom I had high respect because you're known by the company you keep. And I was fortunate in that respect because I probably knew more than one on, on the boards that I did join. But to be a total stranger and walk into that environment I think is dangerous. 
The third is it would be helpful if I knew a little bit about the business. So I tended to uh, fish in the ponds where I had worked with at Pricewaterhouse and had some uh, background. So, for example, entertainment, music, and so forth, I knew nothing. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have been uh, any good on such a board. On the other hand, on telco, banks, extractive industries, I had some background. Those were a couple of criteria I had. Uh, and that's part of the due diligence. You should also know, I think the due diligence goes both ways. The, the, the management and the, the, the governance committee or whoever drives it at the board should do equally uh, the due diligence necessary to know what they're getting. But as I said, if you really know someone well on the board, or more than one, they're probably the best reference you got. I agree with you. I think I think fit is really important. Fit, yeah. It's one of the most difficult things to, to figure out. You'll know when you've got it. But and some, you'll know when you don't. You know yeah. when you don't. So I always, when I when approach to go on boards, I do the same thing. I, I talk to people who know people, someone who, who's on the board I like to know and I trust, or if I don't know someone, I know somebody else who does, who's had connection with these people, and you sort of triangulate that. Um, and that's, that tends to work very well. I've had one experience where I was asked to join a board, and I went. I didn't know anybody on the board, but it was, I was recommended by someone I had a lot of respect for. And I met with the chairman of the board and one of the, and the director of the governance committee. We had dinner together. And I left that dinner and I said to myself, this just feels wrong. I don't, this doesn't feel good. And of course, I made the classic mistake of saying, I'm all in. And it was one of the biggest mistakes. I, it was the board was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. I couldn't wait <laughs> to get off it. it. I got off it. I had to get off it. I just, it just wasn't right. And it was, I had to get off. And, and how do you get off in a, in a case like that? Do you just give it so much time and decide yeah. it's time to resign? Um, yeah, you make a call and say, okay, listen, I can't make a contribution or I'm not aligned here. Uh, this isn't going to work. And mm -hmm. you, you move on. You move on. Not easy. Not easy to do. Mm -hmm. I know two cases that are uh, public companies where uh, respected directors uh, made a point uh, and it was part of their uh, core values, I guess, when they were making the point and asked the rest of the board, you know, is anybody here with me or, or, or what do you think? And these were important uh, points that they were debating. And the board didn't, and the director resigned in the meeting. And in both cases, the resigned resigning director was absolutely right because subsequent events proved it. It happens. It happens. And have either of you ever seen the opposite where uh, a board member has been asked to leave by the chair of the governance committee or uh, the, the chair and has refused? I have not encountered that. No. I mean, it's not a happy moment, but no. no. I mean, theoretically, theoretically, you're elected by the shareholders and you're entitled to stay in that role until the next meeting. So you could be, in fact, terminated or asked to leave and, and decide not to. It's hugely disruptive. Yeah. If you, I mean, any director worth it, worth their salt would, would, of course, resign. I've seen, I've heard of instances where that occurs. There's workarounds. You set up executive committees. You, you go through various gymnastics to try and deal with it. But it, Gigi, it's so uncommon. So yeah. uncommon. You know, it's you can't hide behind age limits or term limits to solve those kind of problems. No. You have to deal with it uh, when it happens. Yeah. Any other final comments before we? Uh finish up no I, th I would say this thankfully you know i've been on my share of dysfunctional situations but the majority of the boards i've served have been very good absolutely very good 
Absolutely. We're talking about the exceptional here. Yeah. Yes. yes. Absolutely. And what is it that makes them a great board? What if, if there's one thing that you could say that would make it a great board and that would help you to deal with the risks associated with a dysfunctional board? Well, I'd say a team uh, that works well together. I think on the team you need relevant experience. And every now and again, some member on the team of board of directors is a lead violinist on a given topic. Non-dominance, everyone has their airtime, is important. Knowledge of the business, as I said. Uh, it's interesting to me that, I'm making this up, but John and I could be on a board A, and that board has a personality. We have our personalities, but we're not going to change our core values, but it has a personality. We could go over to board B, and actually it's a different feeling. It is. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's, it, it, boards have their own persona, their own culture, their own way of doing things, I find. That's absolutely so you've got to go back to the core principles all the time. Are yeah. we doing the right things? Mm-hmm. If, you've got, if you've got competent people who've got good judgment, good relevant experience, and I actually think good board leadership and a great relationship with the CEO, life, yeah. life is pretty good. I'd underline common sense. Yeah, I would too. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think this is uh, going to be very uh, helpful for those who are involved in listening. Thanks. Thanks, Susan.